Today I'm going to talk about uh, hunter-gatherer subsistence ecology, which is uh, hunter-gatherer diet and how they get it. What's its relevance um, to uh, the modern world? Uh, its relevance is largely because we think of hunter-gatherer diet as a kind of cornerstone for um, our, you know, uh, the best diet that we can have. We can think of hunter-gatherer subsistence as being the Garden of Eden, and um, our departure from the right and true road of, of, uh, of, of proper nutrition came with our uh, departure from the uh, Garden of Eden. But it's hugely, uh, hugely problematic, and what I'm hoping to do across the next 50 minutes is to um, lay out uh, some of these problems, some of which are resolved and some of which are not. But I think it's probably useful to start with a few uh, definitions. What are hunter-gatherers? Uh, a definition here from Catherine Panterbrick. Um, hunter-gatherers rely on a mode of subsistence characterized by the absence of direct human control over the reproduction of exploited species and a little or no control over other aspects of population ecology, such as the behavior and distribution of food resources. So they practice no deliberate alteration of the gene pool of exploited resources, in contrast to people who rely on the main on agricultural pastoralist subsistence base. And I'm going to talk next week about agricultural pastoralist subsistence. So no deliberate exploitation is an important issue, because if they didn't actually change... Um, any um, aspect of the gene pool or, the, uh, or their exploited species, it's argued that agriculture may never have emerged. The mere act of consuming something um, in one place, defecating somewhere else, changes um, <clears throat> the biological landscape. You can see this with, with, with primate species that might you know, exploit you know, certain kinds of fruits and just their mere exploitation of those particular fruits means that you'll get a concentration of those particular species in, in, in a particular location. So by default, even by not deliberately manipulating uh, the, uh, the, uh, the biological landscape, hunter-gatherers do. But the issue is, is one of, of uh, following um, the ebbs and tides of, uh, of the local environment. And um, the Garden of Eden aspect of this is that everything can thrive, everything can survive because there isn't a sense of um, uh, exploitation involved in this. And of course, when we start to see the emergence of agriculture, we get the first emergence of, of, of types of capitalism in which food is a type of capital. And then you start to see the emergence of inequalities and, and so on. So I'm going to talk about recent hunter-gatherers um, in the main, but I will allude to ancient hunter-gatherers of the, of the Pleistocene, so-called Stone Age, and uh, uh, because one needs to consider the issues of analogy. When we're trying to think back into the past, we say, ah, hunter-gatherers, let's find a group of hunter-gatherers who are pristine, have never been influenced by the outside world, and they will be our time capsule into the way that all humans behaved uh, at one time. And, of course, there are problems with this, and there are debates over this. 
There are also problems and debates about dietary and nutritional diversity in as much as the Stone Age diet has been characterised in the public health literature as a certain kind of thing. And there is an element of misrepresentation in this. And I'll, I'll talk about that also presently. Now, if you look at uh, hunting and gathering and how it's changed, and let's deal with the issue of, of analogy first. Um, if we go back prior to the origins of agriculture, let's go back 10,000 years. Um, we can speculate that there was a, a world population of perhaps around 10 million we can't be very precise about this, but everybody was foraging. This was the only game in town, had there been towns. And wherever there were human populations, um, the, the human response was to, uh, uh, was to uh, um, use the landscape, um, presumably in a non-exploitative way. But even there, there are problems. Uh, whatever happened to the woolly mammoths? Whatever happened to all those giant wombats and kangaroos? There's a exactly. There's a fabulous um, skeleton of an extinct kangaroo in, uh, well, several museums, but the one I know is in the Museum of South Australia in Adelaide. This thing is huge, huge. Kangaroos don't get that big anymore. They were made extinct. Uh, we go to a series of caves in Margaret River in uh, Western Australia, which is I recommend highly if you ever have the chance to at some stage. Get out of Perth, go down to Margaret River. The water's beautiful, if dangerous at times. Um, it's got some of the best wineries in Australia, and you can see extinctions if you care to look for them. Because there are big caves you know, that were full of, 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 of bones of, of, uh, of, of large animals that were, that were driven to extinction. Similarly, similarly with, the, with, the, with the woolly mammoths. So the argument about hunter-gatherers just taking what they need can actually, can actually be uh, debated. With the ascent of agriculture, uh, again, a speculative global population of maybe 350 million. Um, these pictures come from Herb DeVore's book, Man the Hunter. Um, Urban DeVore is at Harvard Anthropology, probably, almost certainly emeritus now, um, and um, uh, uh, prepared a, a classic uh, um, text on hunter-gatherer ecology called Man the Hunter, published in 1976. It is a classic and still worth reading to the present day because there are no new hunter-gatherer groups emerging. So it's, the, the data is, 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 uh, is, is, is absolutely valid. Very rapidly, hunter-gatherers disappeared in all kinds of ways. Some of them were assimilated, took on agriculture. Some of them, it is claimed, to become, become marginalised. But from a population, you know, uh, it's argued that there had been uh, a, a, a marginalisation of hunter-gatherer groups. The dominant narrative is their lands were taken over by agriculturists very rapidly. And uh, if that's the case, then you're left with contemporary, the contemporary world, say 1970s in this case, where you have a, a number of pockets of hunter-gatherers in uh, Central Africa, um, uh, in, uh, in Namibia, for example, in Amazonia, in India, um, in Borneo, uh, in Australia, uh, and 
the question is, are they encapsulated groups and therefore not representative um, of uh, hunter-gatherer groups in the past more generally? You have, uh, you, you have that problem. Uh, the kinds of hunter-gatherer groups that may have persisted are the ones that weren't in a position to store things, that uh, didn't, were not able to engage in um, uh, delayed return economies, that is, lending and giving and sharing and gifting in a way that would lend itself to, uh, to, to, to agricultural production. <clears throat> if you're an immediate return, in an immediate return economy, you take what you want, you share what you have immediately, and uh, you're kind of living for the moment. If you're in a, a delayed return economy, you're, you, know, you may give some food to somebody who needs it on the expectation that they will give back at some stage in the future. It's totally in the head. It's totally cultural. And the societies that are able to, to, to give and share in this way, it has been argued, are more susceptible to, 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 to agriculture because this is a system that re relies heavily on the production of food as a good that can be consumed, can be shared, can be traded, and so on. So, are they marginalised? Some would say yes, that we have groups like um, the uh, Kumbushmen, I'm going to talk more about them, um, shortly, Australian Aboriginal groups, which I'll uh, talk more about uh, presently, and uh, they sit, uh, you know, they sit in their, you know, in their marginal capsules. You can't argue otherwise for groups like, you know, Californian hunter-gatherers, Apache, for example, um, uh, Algonquins, who are sitting, you know, inside um, first world nations um, that have a, a very dominant political economy. Britain had hunter-gatherer groups at one time. They kind of all disappeared. Uh, um, they've kind of all been assimilated. Australian Aboriginal people are an extremely uh, marginalised group uh, within, a, within a, a dominant First World nation. So you can't argue otherwise. But an issue about analogy is important and interesting. They are certainly politically marginalised in the present world. Uh, <laughs> Virtually, virtually everywhere, and if they're not politically marginalised already, they're on the way to being politically marginalised. Uh, but the question of how marginal they might be in terms of in terms of subsistence. Okay, reading from the abstract of this paper by by Porter, uh, 2007. Um, it said it's frequently suggested that human foragers occupy marginal habitats that are poor for human subsistence because the more productive habits, habitats they use, they used to occupy, have been taken over by more powerful agriculturalists. This would make ethnographically despite foragers a biased sample. Um, but they test the assertion using global remote, remote sensing data to look at habitat productivity for a sample of uh, hunter-gatherer societies and agricultural societies, both worldwide and in tropical warm climate subsamples. Um, and the tropical climate subsample is assumed to be relevant for earlier periods in human evolution. So if we think about the out of Africa idea, that this is where the analogies are particularly important if you want them to, if you want them to work. Um, they suggest that foraging societies worldwide don't inhabit significantly more marginal habitats than agriculturalists. In addition, the warm climate subsample, uh, foragers occupy habitats that are slightly, uh, though not significantly more productive, that is no difference, than agriculturalists. So they call into question the marginal habitat criticism. So I don't have a resolution of this, simply to say, you know, 
there are intuitive arguments about what hunter-gatherer societies represent. They're clearly politically marginalised, but in terms of the productivity of their land, um, this kind of evidence suggests uh, suggests uh, suggests no suggests no difference, and therefore they can continue to be used in um, in analogy. Now, moving to the Stone Age diet, the hunter-gatherer diet, uh, if it's if it follows environmental conditions, then the first kind of organising principle is that of latitude. If you sit more than 60 degrees above the equator, you can't actually do very much gathering. I mean, imagine gathering in the permafrost. First away, chip away three metres of ice, then see what's growing down there. No, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. So... Understandably, hunting and fishing have to be the primary modes of, 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 of foraging in those, in those circumstances. The closer you get to the equator, the more dominant gathering gets, and that's not surprising at all. The closer you get to the equator, um, the more likely you, have, you are to have groups who live um, in circumstances where there's, there's good biological productivity. So um, there's lots of forage around, so there's plenty to forage. That is really not a surprise at all. In terms of um, dietary diversity within particular groups, uh, it's organised by season and by locality, but if you pursue the locality issue, here, Boyd Eaton um, at Emory University um, and Malcona uh, put together this model paleolithic diet. Google model Paleolithic diet and see what you come up with. Because this is something that very much structures thinking about what we should be eating in the present day. Their model Paleolithic diet comes very close to uh, giving the kind of physiological, biochemical uh, profiles that are appropriate for good health in the contemporary world. So they've argued, actually, we don't want, we shouldn't be eating any agricultural products or store-bought foods, right? So we shouldn't be eating any junk food, shouldn't be eating um, any uh, refined carbohydrates, we shouldn't be eating any wheat, we shouldn't be eating any rice, we should, you know, we should just be eating vegetable products, honey if you have it, shouldn't be eating sugar. We know that sugar is a toxic substance if, for some people, if they consume it in huge amounts, they can go on to develop diabetes. We know this. And that we should be eating 30%, 35% of our dietary energy from animal products. I tell you, you guys are students and you cannot afford to live on this diet. You cannot afford to live on it. Cost it up in the supermarket and work out how much you would need to spend to be able to live on vegetable products and animal products. You know, to be able to get enough food to be in balance. That is not lose weight. It's actually... That is, a, that is a, the kind of diet that a privileged person can only consume. And I know people who consume this, but, you know, they're sitting at the top of their, their, their particular social order to, uh, and, and, and can afford that. Um, but when we look at the variation in animal product consumption, it can be as low as 9%, it can be as low as, 68, as, as high as 68%. In terms of vegetable products, it can be, um, it can be as low as uh, 27%, as high as 70%. Huge diversity in what hunter-gatherers actually consume. 
that model Paleolithic diet is a little bit of a cheat because it's averaging out a great diversity of different diets and saying, you know, this is, this is what we come out with. Um, as a guideline, maybe it's okay, but for polemic, re- and for polemic reasons, it's okay. But ignoring the diversity is actually being a little bit irresponsible. So, foraging as an economic system. Food is central to the economic system. For you, when you become um, fully grown up and in the workforce, the vast majority of you are going to be working with things that are extremely abstract. And you will take food for granted. I hope you will take food for granted. But the hunter-gatherers, it's quite the opposite. It's central to what they do. It raises all kinds of questions about you know, how people should behave in terms of maintaining and preserving and conserving. It raises questions about how we should behave as good economic citizens in the contemporary world as we start to deplete the world's resources with systems that are using up the capital of the planet, using up the minerals, using up the oil, using up the coal, and so on. We're very familiar with that. Hunter-gatherers claim to have limited needs and limit their capture of what's theoretically possible. Okay, I've never lived with hunter-gatherers, but I have spent time with hunter-horticulturalists. I've told you that I'm useless as a, as a hunter. What also is interesting that if you, you know, I spent time with Wapkaimen in, 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 in Papua New Guinea, and if I have this book, and I'm in a house, and here it is, and it's sitting there, you see that, go on, take it, go on, take it, go on. Okay. You say, that's nice. Can I have it? Go on, say it. Can I have it, please? I say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You see, it's bad. So, oh, go on, say it. <laughs> yeah, sure. Go on, take it. <laughs> okay, then you say, this is a nice jumper. No, okay, you don't need a jumper. I I clearly see you don't need a jumper, but you do need a book and you do need a bag. Now, um, under those conditions, I would be obligated to let anybody have anything that's mine. The idea of property isn't uh, individual property. Um, That's a nice book. Can I have it? Uh, The idea of individual property really doesn't arise. So in terms of limited needs, people find among themselves... People share among themselves. Do they live in long-term balance with their resources? Both sellers argued yes, but you know the fact that we have archaeological evidence suggesting otherwise um, has to be taken into account. The issue is, <clears throat> while hunter-gatherers in the ethnographic present, that is, while you're studying them, appear to be totally imbalanced, in balance, there are times when they are not in balance. They go through crises like any other population. Um, they may show population expansion, grows dramatically, they may have population collapse. So there may be catastrophic events that you do not see in you know, the immediate study of a, particular, of a particular group. They act to conserve resources by stopping work when, need, when needs for immediate subsistence are met. Well, uh, yes, but it depends on when you're seeing them and for what time you're seeing them. What structures the economic system? This takes us to an area 
uh, well known to, to zoologists called op- optimal foraging theory. And that is how does one use, um, how does one use time and space? Uh, a little digression. This is a slide from a presentation by somebody from a well-known supermarket, which is common knowledge among the people who organise supermarkets about how a shopper shops. Shoppers have less time for shopping and more for the majority of their trip, shop on autopilot, and need to find their desired purchase quickly. This is optimal foraging. This is accepting one aspect of optimal foraging theory, that foraging is time-limited. You only have so much time to get what you need. If you're a hunter-gatherer, you might say, I have 12 hours in the day, I'm on a, in a sparse habitat, I've got 12 hours to get what I need. In a supermarket, however, it's a very rich patch choice. Extremely rich patch choice. You can get everything you need, but these days we are less limited... Um, uh, we're limited by two things. We're limited by time and we're limited by money. And as Einstein might have said, time is money. We're limited by, by one thing. So when or another, you guys are probably limited by money more than time. So you can spend a bit more time in the supermarket actually working out how to live cheaply off the things that are in there. Um, but the majority of people are in a hurry when they're a supermarket. This is how they plan supermarkets. Shoppers have a limited attention span. They shop by peripheral vision. Um, they look for signposts on the horizon. These are store maps. So you look for one thing, you know that's there, so you move to that particular aisle. You look for the category before you hone down exactly what you want. Now, what is, how the supermarket manipulates this, once you know your habitat, once you know your environment, they create discontinuity to create triggers. So something's a little bit out of position. So you jolted towards buying something that you wouldn't ordinarily have bought once you're in the pattern. Um, you deselect before you select. You say, don't want, don't want, don't want, don't want. But you move home in on what you want. And then there's this cross-shopping, which means, you know, if you're buying pasta, you're going to go straight for the sauce. And if you buy sauce, you probably want to get cheese. So they put things in a way that you're going to get all those categories together in one, in, in one bundle. So optimal foraging theory is alive and well and serving the community and serving, and serving you, as well as serving capitalism. Its significance. The food environment is limited by energy, by specific nutrients, by time. But something that we don't have to think about very much these days are predators. Other species need to think about predators. So <clears throat> there might not be enough dietary energy out there to collect. So then you're looking for the energy, energy-dense, energy-intense products. So you're looking for things that are going to be big bundles of a lot of energy. If you're in a supermarket, that might be, uh, and you're money-limited, that might be a kilo of lard. Would you eat that? I don't know, but it's a very, it's a very cheap and uh, dense source of dietary energy. If you're a hunter-gatherer, it might mean consuming parts of an animal that are, that are energy-dense, eating the brain of an animal, for example. High energy density. You'd eat part, you wouldn't eat lean muscle, you'd eat the bits that, are, that contain the most fat. Those are the most important, important parts, uh, parts of an animal. <clears throat> you might live in an environment that is, that is, that is, nutri- that is protein-deficient, so you'd be focusing your, your search on, on things, that, the, things that are pro- protein-rich. 
Then, of course, I've said time. These things are all interchangeable. Um, you might be time-limited and energy-limited. If you're both, then, uh, uh, and you can't get enough energy, then, then you have problems. There are only so many hours in the day. There's only so much, so much time you can spend foraging. And then, there are other things you have to do. You can't just forage all the time. And predators we can, we can largely um, ignore in the present day, except that the past hunter-gatherer populations had serious foragers. I mean, you're wandering around a supermarket and you're confronted by a lion. No, that doesn't happen. That's surrealism. In the real world, if you were wandering around the savannah and there were lions out a particular time of day, you wouldn't be following that. What you would do is manipulate your time schedule. The lions are asleep in the afternoon, then that's when you'd go and forage. So, you know, you might be, that would limit your time because you wouldn't want to confront a lion because you wouldn't win. What you would want to do is to organize your time so you could avoid the predators. So that would create time limitations. So all of this, this calculus is, is interchangeable. And you know, you could subject this to econometric analysis straightforwardly using similar equations that the economists use. Different kinds of models for optimal foraging. This is um, um, Aboriginal painting, but what it shows are different campsites. It's a mental map. It's a mental map of a, of a region. Where you place your camps, where you choose to sleep, also determines where you're going to do your work. Now, it's interesting that if we behave like hunter-gatherers, we might actually just set up our camp outside the, the lecture theatre or something and then come in in the morning. It's the most efficient way of doing things. We just happen to live in a very crazy society where it's cool to burn a lot of fossil fuels to move people long distances so they can come in for a few hours a day into buildings that then stay empty for two-thirds of the rest of the day. So it's uh, an astonishing world. Okay, if that was a, a local environment, this is a, another uh, Aboriginal, um, uh, Aboriginal mind map, if you will, um, uh, a, a beautiful one. Um, the idea of going for a walk, going walkabout, that people go on trails, people go long distances, but these things are not random. Um, there are decisions. There are decisions about where you might set up camp, where you might go from place to place. This represents a mountain in, in central Australia. It's a very clear geography. These represent different rock types. So these represent different kinds of habitats and different uh, plant and animal species um, associated with them. Another principle um, of uh, optimal foraging is group, group coordination. This is uh, uh, somebody in uh, Arnhem Land, um, in, a, in the Arafura swamps, if you will, in the very north of Australia, uh, burning off, burning off vegetation. Now, in order to be successful in getting animals that are living in that vegetation, you burn off the, you surround a patch of vegetation, you burn off the vegetation, you watch what comes out, and you kill what comes out. You can't do that on your own. Nor could any one of you, however big and strapping a male might be, one of you could not hunt a woolly mammoth on your own. It would not even be interesting sport to watch. It would be a massacre. Um, whereas if you get enough people together, you can bring down big animals. So there are different ways in, in which group coordination... has been argued that hunting and gathering has been a way in which, um, which uh, you know, human social thinking emerged in this kind of context around very real, uh, very real uh, subsistence problems. And that's just for fun. Okay, it's a, uh, a slide. Okay, the other thing is the need to develop skill. Um, this needs to be learned. Childhood 
um, is something that's uh, important for the developing uh, development of skills to be able to um, do the right sort of thing. You don't just go out into a landscape and say, I'm going to look for whatever. You learn where you're going to find things, how you're going to find things, at what time of year. All of this is, is, is scientific knowledge. It's scientific knowledge because it comes through repeated observation. Um, but something that is very important to hunter-gatherers and anybody else, which is the drive um, for food novelty. Okay? If we go around the supermarket, you know, part of us are, are driven by what we know, but we're also driven by food novelty. So how do people develop diverse diets? Only through experimentation, through experimentation uh, of uh, uh, the use of uh, different potential foods, and some things end up being rejected because they're straightforwardly toxic. The workload. Uh, been demonstrated by Marshall Salins, um, uh, MacArthur, that hunter-gatherers don't seem to do a lot of work compared to agriculturalists and compared to people in contemporary society that seem to be chasing their tails just to, just to uh, stay, uh, stay uh, economically viable. Uh, the uh, workload of hunter-gatherers, this is uh, hours of the day, you know, from waking up in the morning to, to, to the end of the day, of the 14-hour day, on average, three and a half, four hours a day seems to be the, the kind of the norm for, for, for these uh, uh, northern uh, Australian hunter-gatherers. But five hours in another case, um, uh, Australian case. But is it a li life of leisure? Um, it's been argued by Salins that hunter-gatherers live, uh, uh, live life in a state of primitive affluence. Well, it may be, but it may not be affluence as you know it. Um, that is, if you don't need very much, then it's very easy to be affluent. Any one of you could live a life of affluence if you chose to reduce your needs and chose to reduce your, 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 your wishes. If you were not tempted by the latest iPod, and we're not tempted by the, you know, the, the, the latest car. When, you know, whatever, whatever it is. A stream of things are out there as you know, novelty devices that, 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 that we need to consume and we're persuaded to, to want. But if you could limit your, your needs for those things, you could actually live a primitively affluent life. It's not difficult. It's not difficult. Um, how heavy a workload is it? Well... Um, Mark Jenicky um, has done, uh, put together huge amounts of physical activity data. What does it actually mean? Uh, this number, if you get a number about 1.8, it means it's moderate physical activity. Uh, a number about 2.1 and, and, and it's high levels of, of physical activity. Um, you get to 1.5 and it's couch potato physical activity. And you can actually get lower than 1.5, really. Um, um, Cambridge women, UK, have been shown to have much lower levels of physical activity. Uh, uh, so what does this mean? Basically, foragers, on average, male, female, 
seem to have moderate levels of physical activity. Um, less than horticulturists. What are horticulturists? Horticulturists are people who are, you know, behaving like gardeners. So they're not really intensively cultivating one thing. They might plant many different species of, of, of plant in, in one particular place. So it's a very mixed kind of kind of system, and they're pulling diversity. So they're manipulating the landscape as opposed to as opposed to just seeing what it gives. They take the bits they want and plant it all together. Again, another part of Papua New Guinea. Um, this was part of a sort of uh, a, a system that, that, that I was working with, and people planted little gardens all over the place in, in, the, in the Nipah swamps. So they were going out fishing, they'd be coming home, and then they'd come and you know, find whatever was growing in their, in their garden. They wouldn't actually cultivate it, they'd just put stuff in and then, then, then see what was, what was up for grabs when, uh, when, uh, when they went past it. So it wasn't kind of weeding and all that kind of thing, they just, just put it in. So their activity levels are slightly higher. Agriculturalists and industrialists, that is people actually physically working down the coal mines and things like that, um, have much higher levels of, levels of physical activity. Now, I'm going to talk about this next week, about agriculturalists and the problems with agriculture. Agriculture both creates more food, but it also ties people into, uh, into a regular work pattern. And it ties people in um, to... Uh, to, to fairly intensive work patterns, but more about that next week. In terms of energy intakes, extremely variable. Um, low levels have been, have been seen among uh, uh, Aboriginal groups, and you get groups like the Ache have an intake of about 16 megajoules per day. That's more than most of you could consume. It's huge. It's a huge amount of food. But these Ache... Um, uh, are exemplifying one particular issue, which I'll talk about late, a little bit later in relation to the Kung. And that is, at the time that Kim Hill and colleagues were studying the Aceh in the 1980s, actually, they were going through a good time. They'd gone through population decline, depletion in the previous, in the previous generation. The population was increasing in, in, in size. And so there was plenty of food relative to, to pop, relative, to, relative to their needs. And they were not stopping at their immediate needs. They defined their needs as being able to uh, uh, consume, for, uh, consume for a large body size. It's been used to argue that, you know, actually a uh, hunter-gatherer lifestyle can be, can be an affluent one, but you could equally argue that these people are, are rebuilding to where they were before. They're kind of going boom and bust, boom and bust, as opposed to, you know, uh, uh, perpetuating themselves at a, at, a, at a regular population size relative to, relative to resources. Nutritional status. You talked about body mass index, and uh, this is, uh, these curves are body mass index curves. Um, lines. Lines are strictly curves. Um, body mass index is a cutoff point for undernutrition. Body mass index of 20 is kind of yeah, pretty healthy, 22.5 in most Western societies is pretty healthy. Um, body mass index of 25 would be here and 30 would be here. They're under field conditions. There are no obese hunter-gatherers. But um, when things change, like in Octedi, again in Papua New Guinea, where hunter horticulturalists suddenly get access to a Western diet, then you can see obesity emerging very rapidly. <coughs> because of changes in lifestyle. So what is their nutritional status like? Well, it's within, it's within bounds. But when you look at groups like the Kung, Bushmen of the Kalahari Desert, 
the mean body mass index of 18.5. Australian Aboriginal people too. But come, let's focus on them. Um, it means if the average is 18.5, actually there's a lot of people, half the population, that have body mass index below that. So if they are living in a state of primitive affluence, it's not affluence as we know it. Australians have a mean body mass index of around 18.5. They're a special case. Why are they a special case? I talked about differences in body proportion last week. Australian Aboriginal people like East African pastoralists have relatively long legs for their overall body size. So their body mass index, uh, their cut-offs for body mass index should be lower because um, they have a, a different body proportionality and body composition. Okay, to move to the example of the, 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 the Kung Bushmen. Well, this is a, an old picture of the Kalahari Desert. And uh, the first thing that you should notice is that if this is a pristine environment looking at hunter-gatherers, there's a road going through it. It may be a dirt track, but it's still a road. The significance of any road is that it only takes one car to go somewhere for a group to be depristined. In fact, Richard Lee, who did the classic studies at uh, University of Toronto, um, uh, worked extremely hard to try and find a group of Kung that hadn't been involved with, with, with Western society. And, and he found about 300-odd uh, people in uh, remoter, uh, remoter Kalahari. Um, by that stage, they were not typical of the group at that particular time. But to think about the, uh, about the Kung, do they work hard? The answer is no. Um, this number, 0.21, means how many days do you need to work to get one day's subsistence? 0.2 means you need to work one day to produce five days' worth of food. So it looks, it looks pretty good. But note that this guy was collecting this data only at one time of year, at July. This, you know, we can criticise this now because it didn't take into account seasonality, but at the time, this was a pioneering study. They don't need to work hard, according to this. They have environmental constraints. Annual rainfall varies enormously. So, given that they live in a semi-arid zone where rainfall is usually very small, this is annual rainfall in millimetres. And, um, okay, the annual rainfall there is considerably lower than, than, than the UK annual, annual rainfall, by about 50%. By about 50%. Um, when there's no rain in a particular year, if it drops to you know, 300 millimetres below 300 millimetres, then there's potential for drought. But what is interesting is that people, because they have scientific knowledge about optimal use of their landscape, manage to survive the dry years. In terms of, of subsistence and environment, it's often not exactly what the environment is doing in terms of rainfall, but it's how people, the adaptations that populations have to be able to cope with that environment. So local knowledge is important. Also knowledge that there are good years and the bad years is important. And what to do when you need to fall back on um, uh, uh, hardship crops, um, hardship, uh, uh, hardship foods. And, of course, seasonality. I mentioned uh, Richard Lee worked uh, there in, uh, in, uh, in uh, looked at work patterns in, in the months of June, July. 
And you know, after you've had significant rainfall in uh, uh, March, April, May, um, then after that, uh, things grow. You go to a desert, and you go into a desert in the wet season, it's beautiful. Anybody done that? Wildflowers? Uh, no? No, yeah. I mean, you know, suddenly there's things that have been sitting around all year waiting for the chance just emerge. Same is true in the Kalahari Desert. The Kung actually have flowers around, you know, around their encampments. They like flowers. They are, you know, aesthetic creatures like, 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 like the rest of us. But this gave people a clue as to, you know, how intensification could, could emerge. If people are attracted to certain uh, plants and animals, then... Um, they can they can easily become intensified. The Kung are blessed with one particular commodity, which hasn't globalized, um, and that is the Mongongo nut. It's very memorable. So if you leave this course knowing nothing more than the Mongongo nut, um, congratulations! You'll be you'll be throwing that out there forever. Uh, or even somebody may even get around to marketing them. That would be, that would be interesting. Uh, but they contain an awful lot of polyunsaturated fat. They contain an awful lot of protein, 24 grams of protein per 100 grams of, of nuts, a lot of calcium, a lot of zinc, and a lot of other stuff. They're incredibly, incredibly, uh, an incredibly rich commodity. Here's a bunch of women who are gathering, gathering the things. Once you know, the season's finished, these things drop to the ground. They're in this hard-shelled thing. They're out there you know, pulling this stuff back. And the only thing that limits them is actually the time taken to walk back to the camp, the size of the baby on their back, how much they can actually, they can actually carry. In terms of contributions to the diet, the vegetables are vegetable sources, are a major source of dietary energy for the Kung, again, according to Lee. But what you find is that the vast majority of that vegetable source of protein, uh, of, of energy, um, uh, comes from Mongongo nuts. Now, if you look at... So he was there at a particular time when there were a lot of the things around. They're there for the whole year, but they tail off. They become less, less available. If you look at this particular season, um, there's great seasonality in the availability of... of, of of nuts, and that's when he was there. This is the nut cycle. It disappears down through November, December. Um, there's uh, uh, increased um, uh, availability of, of berries at a, at a different time of year. Uh, uh, wild beans are available you know, during the, the wet season. So there's great diversity. And the take-home message is that if you have a study that just looks at a short period, come together and say, these guys have got it made. Everything's cool. They're good. They don't need to worry because they've got the Mongongo, Mongongo nut and therefore they are in a state of primitive affluence. Um, you take that and then you say, well, the Kung diet is the typical hunter-gatherer diet. So let's use this analogy with past hunter-gatherers and say, well, past hunter-gatherers probably had it good because we know the Kung have it good. There are, you can see there's methodological problems because they didn't incorporate seasonality. These days, if you want to do a good dietary ecology study of any group of people, you need to take into account seasonal variability in one way or another. You can't just go in for, for, for a month. Then, of course, there's a critique. As I said, there's a track going through uh, the Kalahari Desert. This line represents the border between South Africa and Namibia. The moment you put a border up um, anywhere, 
then that changes things. People can't move. Even, even if you know, they have traditional foraging that ranges across this border, this border formalizes what's there. They become those people, they become those people. It creates a difference. Then, of course, if you've got a bush track, you've got motors. And these guys are really cool with engines. They know how to fix motor cars. And I've seen it in Papua New Guinea where people can, can pretty well, out of the rainforest, um, they're 20 years of age, um, then you know, they're looking for workers to, to work in a mine site, and they're trained up, and within six months, they're real whizzers on computers. It's no problem. It's no problem. People are intelligent, whether they're, whether they're hunter-gatherers or, or, or whatever, whatever they do. So the motor car is the other thing that, that changes those environments. The other debate about, about nutrition, and using the Kung example, is <clears throat> boys and girls, relative to, to growth references, these are Western ones for, uh, for weight and height, and just girls here, uh, and they're much shorter all much lighter. Are they really undernourished or just small in comparison to Europeans? Well, um, this is another issue that's, that's, uh, that's debated. Um, and one resolution of this is in, relation to, is in relation to the fertility. We think that diet and fertility are, are, are related issues. That if you're undernourished, really it reduces um, uh, uh, fecundity. The total fertility rate of the Kung Severely, severely limited. The total fertility of a, of a natural fertility population that's unrestrained could be nine or ten children, like the Amish, for example. Uh, it's about half that rate. It's a low rate relative to what might be possible. Um, their diet is seasonally limited, as the earlier slide from Howells showed. Um, when you get above four children, if you have more than four children, young child mortality increases dramatically. So even if women have more children than... The, the, the four and five. Maternal depletion. Women become more undernourished with the more children they have because, of course, pregnancy and lactation are very expensive nutritionally, energetically. So more children, problems arise with raising those children once you have above a certain number. So there, there is a biological constraint within, this, within these groups. So to argue the smallness of Kung children... Um, is you know just how they are genetically actually is a is a is a false argument because you know these kids are survivors these are the ones that survive who will become small but healthy if you will but they will you know within that population they will have paid a price other children would have died for their success other constraints um, environmental ones and this is the one time that I've actually been able to call upon military might, American military might, to do anthropological research. Uh, in uh, uh, Massachusetts, um, there in Natick, Massachusetts, there is the uh, um, uh, U.S. Uh, uh, Army uh, physiological, uh, physiological Unit, and they have heat stress modeling uh, facilities. They can work out exactly what a guy needs to wear to be in a tank crossing Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever, and that's what the primary aim. But they also have an anthropologist, um, and, um, and, and uh, I, I, I talked to her, and we modelled um, Australian Aboriginal subsistence. Actually, these guys couldn't work after midday um, in, in, uh, because the ra in, in many parts of Australia because the radiant heat load um, would be simply too high. 
and the humidity will be too high in certain areas. So the work scheduling isn't specifically about, oh, we can only get so much food. It may actually be limited by, by other constraints, like, uh, like heat stress. Okay, in summary, hunting and gathering isn't a single mode of subsistence. There's a lot of dietary strategies within different ecological and environmental contexts. The kum, there are phases of drought, um, but there's food abundance for some of the year. Physical activity is intermittent, and work is undertaken to produce high energy returns. <coughs> Seasonality and heat strain, I've mentioned, affect the health status of, of hunter-gatherers. And hunter-gatherers operate within a global context. Many of Undercon are undergoing significant shifts in subsistence in the contemporary world. So the final thing, to look at hunter-gatherers in, um, in global context, um, it's worth taking a look at um, uh, this uh, YouTube link, which is a documentary on resettlement of the Kung and its effect on their nutritional and health status. Thank you.